Our sermon text today comes from John 8, verses 12 through 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. If you haven't yet, please turn to John chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 12, which might be a little confusing to some. Why aren't we doing 1 through 11? You'll notice if you have an ESV out, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of these. They're right in the back on the shelf or out in the bookshelf out there, and you can keep one. And right there before chapter 8, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses 1 through 11. And so when you do some study on how to analyze manuscripts, they find that large portions of the ancient manuscripts don't have 1 through 11 in them. And it's interesting, it seems like it's a story that could have really happened and it was passed along through oral tradition and someone thought, we need to preserve this. And so sometimes it's found here in John. It's also found in other gospel manuscripts, but it doesn't seem to be original to any of them, to what Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John wrote. You can even look at evidence from the uh, church fathers. They, they could, you can rebuild the entire New Testament based off of just what they quote from the Bible. And they never quote this text, 1 through 11. Even when I was translating it, trying to look into it and see if I should be preaching on it, all of the vocabulary, the grammar was really different from what John typically sticks with. So I thought it would be best for us to move on to 
verse 12, and we're actually going to see how it fits seamlessly into the end of chapter 7 really well to continue our theme of the Feast of Booths. So we're going to read again, or study now, starting in verse 12 and move through chapter 30. So before we do that, let's bow our heads and pray. God, we are running to you right now. That's why everyone has gathered here today to come and hear from the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of our lives, that he would shine his light into our darkness. God, we ask that you would do that. Illuminate the eyes of our hearts, that we could see your truth and we could worship you, that we could believe in Jesus and have life in his name. Show us that light. Open our eyes. Plant your truth down deep in us now. Amen. We live in a world of strange self-destructive irony. Irony is when you use a word to say exactly opposite of what it really means, or you act in the world one way when the world actually plays out a completely different way than expected, often to our own detriment. And one concept that we ironically get terribly backwards is justice, the concept of justice. Our society's constantly calling for justice, and what they mean is some kind of Karl Marx equity of outcomes enforced by the sword of government. But what we hate is real, true justice. Rewarding righteousness, punishing wrongdoing. And some of these social political justice advocates might have a little bit of Bible knowledge and they'll happily use the Bible to promote that big political justice. But if you draw attention to their own misdeeds, then they're quick to say, Aha, Jesus says, don't judge. I once met a guy who had, or saw a guy, I didn't get the chance to know him, but he had a big tattoo across his back that said, only God can judge me. And I thought to myself, ooh, he's going to. And it's not going to help you. That tattoo is not going to help you escape accountability for your sins. When you swim in these deep waters of injustice, you can talk all you want about justice, and it's not really going to make sense. When you are in the darkness, you can talk about the light all you want, but when the light turns on, when someone flips the switch on and you're in the darkness, your immediate instinct is to hide from it, to shield your eyes from its power. Have you ever watched a movie where you're leaning in, you're in a dark room and you're in a dark scene, you're kind of leaning in, get really caught up, and then it switches to a really bright scene. Oh, why did they do that? Similarly, we can boast about justice, but when, and lean into it, but when it really comes, its blazing glory will shut our mouths and blind our eyes and put an end to all our excuses. The ironic twist of justice is exactly what we see here in John chapter 8. John wants us to see the pathetic irony of our own ideas of justice and encourage us to surrender to King Jesus to escape his coming justice. 
Our main idea today is to follow that light. Follow the light who will expose all the world's injustice, including yours. So right up front, Jesus is going to tell us, I am the light of the world. He is the light. And that's going to bring all kinds of images into your mind about what light looks like and what it does. But the context here, the story to follow, emphasizes that the primary effect of light, of Christ's light, is to shine true righteousness into this dark injustice. So in verses 12 to 20, John displays for us the dark injustice of the world through these Pharisees who are putting Jesus on trial while the light of Christ ironically exposes their wickedness. And then verses 21 to 30 turn the tables when Jesus warns them that he is soon going to ascend to his throne and bring justice upon them all in his blazing righteousness. All of it is that shock, the light turning on to shock us into following the light who will expose all the world's injustice, including yours. So let's see this irony unfold again with this light entering into the dark injustice. I'm going to read verses 12 through 20 one more time. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So here's where it's important to remember that verses 1 through 11 are, have been inserted later. They, they seem to cause a separation between what just happened at the end of chapter 7 and what's happening now. But really, there's a this is continuing the end of that last scene of the Feast of Booths, where Jesus is making all these statements about him fulfilling all of the imagery, imagery of that festival. So Jesus is starting this new dialogue, engaging the very last thing that the Pharisees said in verse 52. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, that's just not a true statement at all. You can find examples like Jonah, perhaps Elijah, that were born in the northern part of the kingdom in Galilee. But this isn't really what the Pharisees are on about. They, they want to make sure that everyone knows the prophet, the Messiah, is not coming from that nowhere backwoods country of Galilee. But again, this is showing their ironic ignorance of scripture. They're up there puffing out their chests like they're the really smart, knowledgeable ones who know God's word, but they missed a key prophecy. Turn to, back to Isaiah chapter 9. 
It's a little bit right after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, a little bit after that. Isaiah chapter 9 is what Jesus is drawing attention to in his statement here. Isaiah had just been called in the previous chapters to be a prophet to Israel. And he was called through this experience of seeing the blinding light of God on his throne. And he knows when he sees the light on his throne, he is dead in judgment. But God then uses fire from that light to go purify Isaiah and call him to proclaim truth to a people who won't be able to see. They can't hear. They can't understand. And Isaiah looks around the land full of sinners and he refers to it as a land of deep darkness. But he also has a promise from God that a rescuer is going to come bring light into that darkness and rescue them to bring them out. And notice where this light comes from. Verses 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those are the tribes on the northern side. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. What is this new northern part of the kingdom called? Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in the darkness have seen great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. So Isaiah said, light is coming into the darkness from Galilee. Exactly opposite of what the Pharisees just said. Sure, Micah 5 did prophesy that the Messiah would be born from Bethlehem. But Isaiah 9 also said that the child was going to come the one who's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he would be revealed from Galilee. Incredible that Jesus fulfills both of those prophecies. Just further proof of the divine inspiration of this book. And here in verse 12, now he's answering their objection with just stunning visual and verbal clarity. Remember that during this Feast of Booths, the priest would walk up with all these torches and go light at the top of the temple, these giant menorahs. And they would flame so brightly to remind them of that pillar of fire that came out of the tabernacle and led Israel through the wilderness. Jesus uses that imagery and this text from Isaiah 9 to answer the Pharisees' objection about his Galilean origin, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light that guided Israel through the wilderness. I am the light that Isaiah saw on the throne in heaven. I am the light coming from Galilee into the darkness. He's the Messiah who's going to, as Isaiah said in chapter 9, carry Israel's government on his shoulders and reign with justice and peace and righteousness from this time and forevermore. It seems that perhaps now the Pharisees are kind of catching on to what he's saying. Because now the scene kind of unfolds like a courtroom. And you notice all these words about uh, judging and witnesses and testimonies. They put, they're putting Jesus on the stand, on the witness stand. And they're saying that none of this can be true because nobody else can verify it. 
Deuteronomy 17 requires that you have two or three witnesses to verify any claim. So how can he stand here and make all these wild claims and grab all these scriptures and put them together when nobody else has ever taught this way? He's got no support. So first Jesus explains in verses 14 and 15 that he's got a much better vantage point than any of them. His testimony is actually worth infinitely more than theirs. Their testimony is limited because they're of the flesh. They're of this world. This is what Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus in chapter 3. But Jesus can see with God's eyes everywhere. He sees everything and judges perfectly. Yet he, he kind of backs up here a little bit and says, but I haven't come to judge yet. Not at this time. I'm just here to light the way, to bear testimony, bear witness to the truth. But still, to answer their question about all these multiple witnesses, he explains in verses 16 to 18 that he does know the law, and he does have corroborating witness. So, he says, my, other, my second witness is God the Father. Jesus can judge, and it would be a perfect and accurate judgment because he himself is from above, but also because the Father and he share the same perspective. The Father sent him to go share that testimony in this world, bear witness to the truth of what they see from their heavenly perspective. Now, from an earthly perspective, that kind of seems like a convenient way out, right? I have witness, a witness. It's my dad who's invisible. Seems like an easy way out. And that's what these Pharisees are thinking. <laughs> what a moron. Come on now. So they ask him in verse 19, we'll play along with you. We'll play your game. Okay, then. Bring him here. Let's hear him speak. Let's talk to him now. They're just being difficult. The Pharisees know that he has claimed previously to be God's son, and they think that idea is utterly foolish. So they're, they're trying to expose Jesus' folly. Oh, yeah, you have an invisible friend here, huh? Can we talk to him? We can, what, what, is he standing here right now? They're just mocking him. Jesus counters that they don't have a clue what they're talking about. They don't know him. They don't know the Father. He knows the game they're trying to play. What he's saying is that they can't figure this out. They can't see the Father because they are in the darkness about God himself. They think they're so righteous, but they're utterly depraved. They think they know the scriptures, but continually we see how ignorant they are. They think they know God, but they can't see him standing right in front of them. That is some deep darkness. Jesus has appealed to other witnesses before. At the end of John chapter 5, Jake preached through that text saying, John the Baptist was a witness. God the Father was a witness. And the Father wrote down his testimony in the scriptures that continue to bear witness. But they can't see the scriptures pointing to Jesus. They didn't listen to John the Baptist. They won't hear any testimony of this truth. They're exactly what Isaiah saw. People who have eyes but can't see. They have ears but they can't hear. Ironically, they think they are exposing Jesus 
And very cleverly, Jesus is exposing them. This whole trial is a sham. They're trying to make fun of him, shame him, make sure that everybody knows following this guy is foolish. But ironically, again, they continue to reveal themselves as ignorant ones in dark injustice. You see all kinds of little twists in this scene about how dark and secretive this whole thing is, how they're twisting everything for their own purposes. They don't actually seek out witnesses. They just use that to mock them, mock Jesus. Jesus even calls out their improper use of the law in verse 17. He says, it's your law. He doesn't even call it God's law because it can't be God's law if you're using it that way. That was not what God wrote those words for. Look at verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. The treasury was kind of on the inner side of the temple. There's different levels. And on the outside were the courts where everyone's hanging out, worshiping, singing, dancing. On the inside is where the priests and Levites work, do the sacrifices. And not everyone's allowed in there. And kind of in between, there was the treasury. On the outside, there was a little thing that you could throw your tithes in, your money in. And that was to support the priests and Levites because they couldn't own land to make their own money. They were utterly dependent upon those tithes. But they had to keep that money in a secure place where people weren't allowed to wander in. in The kind of perfect place where you could hold a trial and nobody would see it away from everyone's watching eyes. But God's eyes were on them. Even when they had Jesus cornered, they still couldn't arrest him. It's like there's this Invisible force just holding them back. Perhaps another witness testifying that Jesus is true. We don't hear his name. We'll come to find out later who he is. It's it's like the spirit of God exerting the father's will, testifying on Jesus' behalf, exposing the dark injustice of this moment. And so with that turn of events, Jesus just walks away from them and begins to assert more of his authority. In verses 21 to 30, shining his blazing righteousness right into their hearts. Let's read those again. Verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. I find the the work of the Father, maybe by his spirit, 
kind of looking into this a little bit with glasses of faith, all of this work behind the scenes are kind of invisible to our eyes. It's, it's quite humorous. They are trying to trap him in his words, and instead they stumble over their own words. They try to corner him in the treasury, and he sneaks out into the more public space and begins speaking to all of the Jews gathered there. And he says to them in verse 21, I'm going away. You're not going to be able to find me. Then you're going to die in your sins. Ooh, that escalated quickly. Talk about turning the tables. They thought they just had Jesus on trial. Now he's up front putting all of them on trial. Yikes. Jesus finishes off his statement with an exclamation point. Where I am going, you cannot come. And now they're really confused. They, they interpret that to mean he's going to kill himself. Because all they can reason is that he's going to go into the grave and they won't be able to go there with him. That's the only way that he's going to escape their judgment. But that's not what he's talking about. Where's the one place in all of the universe that Jesus can go and none of us can? Where do we know he was going after he left this world? He's going right to the throne at the right hand of God the Father with authority over all of heaven and earth to judge all things. That's where he's going and they cannot follow. In the first section, he said that he does not judge. Not that he can't, not that he won't, but at this moment, he has come simply to testify to the truth. But here he warns them that soon he is going to his throne and he's going to judge them in his blazing righteousness. They think they have authority over him. They're in the darkness. They are from below. They're from this world. Their judgment is so limited by human finitude. Did I make that word up? Is that, I think that's a real word. Finiteness is what I'm going for. We, have all, we just can't see everything to have clear judgment, but he can. Jesus warns them multiple times that unlike the way that he was able to just slip on out of their judgment, nobody will escape his. You will die in your sins. But Jesus provides one way of escape in verse 24. Believe that I am he. Believe who I have said I am. Simply trust that what I'm saying about myself is true. And then all the implications that would follow that, of course. But they keep overcomplicating things. They're trying to deflect attention away from themselves. They're turning the eyes of justice away from themselves. Don't judge because I don't want you to judge me either. But the way, only way to escape coming judgment is to believe who Jesus says he is. So who is he? That's what the Jews ask in verse 25. What does he mean, believe that I am? What are you talking about? Who are you? So Jesus explains further, just as I've been saying from the beginning, I haven't changed my message. I haven't changed my testimony. This is what a consistent witness looks like. 
He's been saying the same thing over and over, using all these different pictures, different parts of the Bible. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He said it. He has proved it. He has taught it from Scripture over and over, but they refuse to listen. They're in deep darkness. He notes more in verse 26 that he could say a lot more and will judge a lot more, but it's not going to make any progress at this moment. We always think that if, if we just had a little bit more information, if he taught with a little bit more clarity, then we would be able to understand. But his point here is that there is one simple truth that we must accept or nothing else will make sense, and it will be the death of our souls. He's not, simply make, he's not making that judgment now, but it is coming. Now he has come to warn people of that coming judgment and the way out of that judgment is to believe that I am he. There's kind of a double meaning in that phrase. It's not simply believe what I've been saying about myself, but believe that I am. The word he is not in the Greek text. It's added there to try to add some clarity because it sounds like a weird sentence if you don't say it. But he simply says, believe that I am. John adds a brief comment in verse 27 that they didn't understand that he was talking about the relationship, his relationship with the Father. Jesus and the Father are one. They are unified. And it'll all become clear, he says in verse 28, when I am lifted up. That word means exalted. Again, it has more double meaning here. Jesus hints that they're going to lift him up but they're not going to exalt him to the throne as that word commonly means. They're trying to get rid of him. They don't want him to rule over them. So they're going to lift him up to die on a cross. They think that will get rid of him. And it will be at that very moment that he proves his authority over them, that he proves who he is, because it will show that he really is the king over all humanity, taking all of the responsibility for humanity's sin upon himself. And then he will show that death has no authority over him. Because everything he does, he says in verse 29, pleases the father. The father will be with him this whole time. And the father will finally prove his testimony to be true when he lifts him up out of the grave and exalts him to the throne in heaven right at his right side. That's what Jesus was explaining in verse 14 when he's going to a place they cannot come, right where he came from, right from the father's side, because he and the father are one. He is God. He is Yahweh. He is the I am from the burning bush in Exodus 3. He is the I am Yahweh who they, all of the Psalms are praising. He's the I am who called a storm to come upon Jonah. And the same I am who calmed that storm by his words. He's the I am who created the universe and the I am who is going to judge it. If you want to escape his judgment, you must believe that Jesus is, I am, the creator, sustainer of the world of your life, and he is God who became a man to take all of your sin upon his shoulders. He's the judge of the world who sees everything done in secret, even the secret thoughts and desires of your heart, 
and there was no escaping his light. His blazing righteousness will expose every corner of darkness. But if you surrender to him, that's the call of recognizing that Jesus will be on his throne, that you surrender, you give up, you cry out for mercy. And if you do follow his light, you find his mercy is great. His promises are true. His blood is pure to forgive you. That light will purify your heart and torch away your unrighteousness. And he will lift you with him to his heavenly throne. That you will praise him there forever in joy. Then you will see that his testimony is true. That invisible but very personal force that kept the Pharisees back from seizing him in verse 20, is now at work again in verse 30, where we see many believed in him. When you surrender to King Jesus, the judge of the world, he gives you his spirit to know the Father's truth and to walk in his light and to trust him to accomplish his purposes. God is not silent. God is not absent. Just as Jesus said, the Father does not leave me alone when you would trust in him, the Father will not leave you alone. He will send his spirit to confirm his testimony day after day until that final day when it is sealed forever. If you don't surrender to him, then you will find out one day that his testimony is true. But by then it will be too late to surrender. Jesus says one of the scariest things in the Bible in Matthew chapter 7 that many have fooled themselves. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? <clears throat> then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Don't be one of those who thinks you are just fine and find out too late that you were deceived in the darkness. This scene is a warning to us at how limited we are. Don't believe your eyes. Don't believe your heart. We're so much like the Pharisees all the time, questioning Jesus, putting him on, on trial. We think that we are in control of our lives. We think that following him, following his commands might be silly or dangerous. But he'll expose the folly of our wisdom He's the one who holds our lives together by the word of his power. He will put us on the stand. Jesus is the only light that makes sense in this world, makes sense of this world. Listen to the testimony of his scriptures and see him there. Immer immerse yourself in the testimony of his people and experience him here. Surrender to his glory and worship. <clears throat> And in that, then you will not only come to find his testimony is true, but now you will be made into a witness yourself of his light. Your life can be a simple, consistent testimony of Christ on his throne in his blazing righteousness. This world is so full of chaos and corruption and, and responsibilities that demand so much of our attention. 
And we think we need to solve every problem in our home and every problem all over the world. And it distracts us from the witness we need to be. We think we need to have an answer for every objection. We get all anxious about what others might think of us, our coworkers, our neighbors, how they might respond to us. But our testimony is simple. Christ is the king of light who shines his righteousness through us into this world of darkness. Let's order our lives around that truth. Our homes filled with that light. Prioritize your week every single week to be with God's people. That they can shine that light into you and you back to them to confirm that testimony. Make that truth the theme of your daily work as it is unto the Lord. And stand firm like Jesus, knowing who you are and where you are going. People might claim that you're being judgmental, but you remember, you're not judging anyone. You're just warning them of the judgment to come. You're bearing witness about his light to come. When the light switch is going to turn on and it's going to incinerate them, you're bringing just a little bit of light at once so they, they can see it and they won't be surprised by it when it comes in all its glory. Follow the light who will expose all the world's darkness and its injustice. Trust that he is on his throne. He is sending his spirit throughout the world. He will restrain evil. He will cause others to believe. Many will reject you, but some will listen because King Jesus is now on his throne at this moment, sending his spirit into the world to carry you through to that final day when he will take the stand on your behalf and testify, this one belongs to me. Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you followed the one who always does what pleases the Father. Let's pray to him. God, we thank you that we can stand justified, righteous, not because we have made ourselves righteous or we have found ourselves Paths to become more righteousness, righteous, we trust in Christ's righteousness, where you look at us when we are on trial and you say not guilty. Because that man's sin, that woman's sin was paid for on the cross. Come, enter into my rest. God, we long for that day. Help us until then to be faithful, to be a witness of Christ in all of his glorious righteousness, that he may receive glory and many, many that we love will believe and join us in singing of his, his righteousness forever. Amen.